do 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 Here we go. My name is Todd Adams. And this is Kathy Adams. Welcome back to Zen Parenting Radio. We have a uh, wonderful podcast set up for you here. We have our friend who we just met. His name is Dr. Kenji Oyasu from Brightside Clinic in Northbrook, Illinois. Welcome, uh, Dr. Kenji. How are you? Fine, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm going to have you bring... There you go. And just stay about that same uh, space away from the mic. Got it. So Dr. Kenji, uh, he founded Brightside to treat opioid... Is that correct? Opioid addiction in a compassionate, collaborative environment. Dr. Oyasu has over 20 years of clinical experience in acute care and office-based treatment. Over the past eight, he has been recognized as a caring leader by taking on leadership roles in major hospitals, improving his clinical skills, and developing his unique practice style. Now, you've called him two different things already. What have I? Dr. Kenji and Dr. Hugh. Uh, say his last name. Oyasu. So which one do you go by, Kenji? Uh, it depends on the situation. Okay, so you do both. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Then great. It's all good in the hood. I just want to make sure because, you know, I want someone to be represented the way they want to be represented. I appreciate that. You know, Dr. Kenji, he graduated from Northwestern University. That's a great school. He's so a you're, you're a Chicago guy. I'm a Chicago guy, born and raised. Nice. Yeah. With a major in psychology and minor in neurochemical science, and he received his doctorate from the University of Illinois College of Medicine. So that's his deal. We had him on here. I'm going to let you tell the story. Well, and we were just talking about it upstairs. I'll tell a, a brief version of it. Um, but I don't know, a couple months ago, I was doing my regular Starbucks run. I ran into a friend at Starbucks. She stopped me and asked me if I knew a specific family in town who had just had a loss. Um, they had had a loss because their daughter had, um, I think their oldest daughter had passed away. Um, it was due to, uh, at least from what I'm told, um, to heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. And she said, what are we going to do about this? Uh, you know, like, this is not this is not the first time this has happened in this community. This is not the first time this has happened in the western suburbs or anywhere else for that matter, right? So she said, what are we going to do about this? And <clears throat> I went home thinking about it, said something to Todd about it, because that's not our Todd and my expertise, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and then, as, you know, the universe would have it, Todd got an email or a Facebook post or something from somebody from Brightside Clinic, and it was all, you know, their whole treatment is around heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. And we were like, there it is. Here's our expert. So Dr. Kenji is here due to that that intervention. So I have a list of questions here, and I deliberately didn't do too much research. I don't, I know very little about heroin addiction. I know just, you know, just, just a handful of things. But um, I have a lot of questions. But first, um, let me start out with this. So I have I have this belief, and I think it's not even true, that you run a clinic for people who are addicted to opiates or heroin. And I just assume that most all of your clients are teenagers who are troubled. No, true or not true? That is not true. Okay, tell me why. Uh, the range, the age range in our patient population is anywhere from 17 to the youngest to 61 being the oldest. 61, Right. Wow. So we're talking about uh, really an epidemic that's going on in the nation right now. This isn't something that's local. I, I happen to get involved only because um, I'm a local physician. I'm, I'm a member of the Lake County Opiate uh, Initiative. Uh, where it is run by the state's attorney's office. And it is there's a lot of people involved in, from EMS, from the community, and uh, we're trying to address the issue in Lake County where it's very prevalent. Uh, I'm on staff at Vista Medical Center in Waukegan, where over the past eight years I've seen the rise in opiate overdoses just mm-hmm. skyrocketing right now. And one of the reasons why is it's because that people that were addicted to pills, that is things like Norco, hydrocodone, mm. codeine, things like that, and they were getting it 
prescriptively by their physician. So, of course, they didn't consider it abuse because my doctor wrote me a prescription right. for my chronic real pain issue that I have. Well, a few uh, last year, the uh, hydrocodones and some of those preparations went Schedule two, which means that it's harder to get these prescriptions. Now, you have to get a hard copy, go to the doctor's office, see them, go to, and they can't just call it in anymore. So when that change occurred, the pill market on the streets just went downhill. Right. And the alternative, of course, is something that's cheaper and easier and very unpredictable, and that's heroin. Mm-hmm. So let me ask this. Uh, can you, the, the science of the brain, why is heroin or these opiates more addictive than smoking cigarettes or any other type of drug? What, right. what is it about? That's a really good question. Uh, what happens, and we've... the. The theory behind addiction, especially with opiates, has really changed in the, even the addiction community, which is really good because the old school methodology was, hey, you just have to quit this. You have to suck it up, you know, handcuff yourself to a bed, get through the withdrawal, and you'll be fine. Well, that's, been, uh, that's an old school methodology that clearly does not work, although it does work for some. 12-step programs, some things that are religious-based, and they're, I mean, those are the old school methodologies and still to this day are being used. But... We know that since the recidivism, and get this, the recidivism for opiate addiction is 95%. What does recidivism mean? The relapse Relapse. rate for opiate addiction is 95%. So even if you have a big ton of money and you can send some loved one to a a program that may be inpatient or away to some beautiful community on a beachside in a a hotel room where there's there's, uh, addiction counselors all day and you're quote-unquote clean for those 30 or 60 or 90 days, you go home. And you're back exposed to the same triggers, mm-hmm. the same environment, you're back in it. It only takes one stressful trigger to put you back in. So how this works is now we understand this is not just an emotional choice being made by people. This is a physiologic problem now. So with prolonged opiate usage and abuse, what happens is that your brain chemistry has changed. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, the best way I can put it is this, how when people get the euphoria or the high from opiates... That is, if they don't have a true pain issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a broken femur and, you know, your leg bone is sticking out of your leg and you give them opiates, yeah, they'll, they'll help with the pain and calm things down. But if you don't have those pain issues, and classically what happens is they start with some kind of pain issue, whether it's back injury or cervical spine thing or chronic migraine or whatever it is, when that pain kind of resolves, they still find themselves using the narcotic to really even mask whatever else is going on in, in their social or psychosocial issues in their, in their own world. So over the over course of time, now your brain has gotten accustomed to a certain, this is what you know, tolerance is, right? So your body is now used to this certain level of drug, and you keep using, and your body now creates more of these opiate receptors in your brain. So mm. you're, you need more and more to get to the same place. People don't get the euphoria or the high anymore, you know, and most of the patients that we see that are still addicted to opiates for long term are people who are just trying to stay out of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So withdrawal from opiates is, is pretty menacing. You know, it's, it's like the worst stomach flu you've ever had. Mm. So you have to think about vomiting and diarrhea and your whole body's on fire and everything hurts and you're sweating and you're covered in goosebumps and you're anxious and you're tremulous and it's just a miserable experience. And is that withdrawal more miserable than like alcohol withdrawal? You know, we've seen movies like Leaving Las Vegas where Nick Cage is like, you know, and, you know, he tries to get sober and then he pounds a gallon of vodka. Is the withdrawal from heroin or opiates more severe than the withdrawal from other drugs? 
That I couldn't say. You know, it is. It's. It can be a devastating withdrawal syndrome. The issue is, and what we're classically taught. Now, I'm emergency medicine trained, mm-hmm. so the classic teaching for us has always been: yes, those people who are in withdrawal are really sick, and they, but they won't die. That's mm. what they always say. Don't worry, they won't die. So, so treat them symptomatically, and then get them to some kind of program. But again, there's really no resource for those people, really. So, but you know, oddly enough, alcohol withdrawal is potentially life-threatening. Mm. So that's a whole different different medical okay. category. Okay. Right. Interesting. Did you want to say something? Because I got the next question. Um, I was just going to say. So they're they're taking they keep taking the um, the pills because they don't want to go through withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. But how long is withdrawal? Like, I don't want to simplify this. Right. I but I you know because obviously I know like you said the relapse. Re- uh, rate is so high mm-hmm. that there's some brain chemistry issues right. for sure. Right. So it's not just all about withdrawal, but how long does that take? Is that a day? Is that a week? Everyone's different. Okay. Yeah. You can't say, some people say they're sick for 36, 72, 96 hours. But the fact is once they get through that quote unquote detox yeah. what period, then? you still have the brain chemistry change yes. that you have continuous crave for the drug. So you have to look at it this way. Um, and, th- and this is kind of simplifying it, but I mean, this is the best way I try to explain to patients. Yeah, please. So the, the joy... The joy you feel, okay, say when you walk into a home and you smell fresh chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. You know, there's that little, oh, you know, in mm-hmm. the, uh, there's a tingle in your brain, there's a tingle in your chest. You go, oh, awesome. You know, it's Thanksgiving dinner. My family said so that, that kind of joy you feel times 10,000 right. is what the opiate drugs do to your, that section of the brain. So wow. when you're that used to that kind of level for so long, now your body thinks, I need this. I need this to survive. So... The crave is what what gives people this compulsive behavior. You know, there there are people who are living in guilt and guilt and shame all day because they use these drugs, and they do they and they know you're not supposed to do any things like retail theft or break into homes and and right. steal. To but they have to do. They can't help themselves. So it is like a brain condition. So it is much like. You know, so they need to be medically treated. So much like a diabetic needs insulin, these people need a medically assisted treatment, whether that's in the form of buprenorphine or methadone or what have you, but they need something medically. You know, oddly enough, and as sad as it is, it's the stigma behind this disease, which is the most complicating factor. So there are no, and I say this all the time, there are no diabetics sitting around a church basement in the dark drinking bad coffee, sharing stories about their diabetes, yet Mm. it is not that different. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a medical condition that if they had medication, they would do okay. Yeah. Right? But it's not just the medication. It's that in conjunction with some counseling and other things to help uh, mitigate the triggers and stresses in their lives that keep them in that addiction cycle. So what do those two drugs, uh, methadone and what's the buprenorphine? Okay, so there's two medical, there's there's more than one. Actually, there's three treatment options now. Uh, Methadone used to be the old tried and true method of treating opiate addiction. And you've heard of methadone clinics, and Mm -hmm. they've been around for a very long time. And the original goal was was good in that if they if the if the methadone was given in a titrated controlled format, you could get people off their opiate addiction and titrate titrate them down and get them off it completely eventually. But methadone clinics are not in the business to do that. Um, if you've ever asked a patient who's gone to a methadone clinic, you know the goal would have probably been six, eight months, a year, a year and a half, whatever it took. But you know I, I meet people all the time saying I've been going to the methadone clinic for fifteen years. Wow. So okay. Open that up for me. I don't sure. understand. Methadone clinics exist to help people get off of these drugs. And right. what you're saying is maybe the intention is to keep them there so they keep making money? 
I mean, that may be harsh, but... Right, but, you know, I, I won't make any friends in the methadone clinics by saying this, but that is the reality. Okay. There aren't... When patients say, hey, I want to wean down on my methadone so I can get off of this, uh, it's it's really amazing the kind of responses I've heard them getting. Mm-hmm. And that is anywhere from, no, we're not going to do that, to you need us more than we need you. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, this is a continuous monetary flow for them. And they have no intention of trying to keep these people clean. So mm-hmm. it, it's very sad. So um, what makes Brightside Clinic or one like yours different than a methadone clinic? So we prescribe a medication called uh, uh, buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. And it comes in a few different forms, Suboxone, uh, Zubsolve, Bonneville, there's a, a Subutex. There's a few different formats. And the, and the difference, and the next question you're going to ask me, the difference between methadone and Suboxone or, or buprenorphine is that uh, methadone is what we call a full opiate agonist, meaning that if you or I did enough uh, methadone, A, we'd get high, mm-hmm. B, we'd overdose and die. Okay. So buprenorphine is what we call a partial agonist. So, and it's got something called a ceiling effect. So the, uh, so the nice thing about this is from a safety perspective, medically treating a patient with it, if you did, if you, there's, once you hit a certain level, so say you need only, say, 16 milligrams of buprenorphine daily for you to feel normal, no withdrawal, no craves, even if you took 40, you'd have the same effect as 16, mm. right? So you're not going to overdose on it. Okay. You're not going to get high from it. So it, it's not something that's abused, although it is something that is diverted, meaning that there are people that will get the prescription from somebody and then sell it to other people. Ah. Typically, there are drug pushers who said, you know, we're going to keep you hooked and we'll give you something until we get you some more heroin or pills or whatever, but this will help you. So oddly enough, some of of the patients we get come to us saying, yes, I did great on that medication, but I couldn't get it. So here's the trick behind Suboxone-type products is that when that became a legal issue to prescribe uh, buprenorphine for opiate addicts, the government put a lock on it and said, okay, we don't want pill mills that we'd, like we had in the 90s. So we're going to say, you can do this, but you can only treat 30 patients concurrently. So that doesn't mean, that's not the kind of thing where, all right, if I can get 30 patients to come to a clinic, it's not going to pay for like, the clinic or no. it won't even pay for the electricity or, or you know, keeping the doors open. So what, the way we've looked at it is there are pr- some primary carers who will do it, but very little. Um, some behavioral health care folks will do it, but again, not enough. And the need for it is far outweighs uh, the resources that exist. Mm-hmm. So my partners and I, John Benedetto and Phil Atterbury, have put together Brightside. Uh, so what we've done is put together a group of physicians. And here's the other thing. To be able to prescribe buprenorphine and Suboxone-type uh, products, you need a special DEAX license. Okay. So not just the, the regular DEA that I would use in my emergency medicine practice, the primary care docs we use in their home offices or their, I mean, their, their business practice. Uh, you need a special, special license from the DEA granting you permission to be able to prescribe this, but then you're only locked down to 30. The following year, it, it'll jump to 100, but again, still, when there are thousands and thousands of people. And right now, statistically, there's fi- the CDC says there's 5.2 million patients using opiate, oh, narcotic opiate prescriptions in a non-pharmaceutical way. Yeah, I believe that. So, so that doesn't even include heroin. That doesn't right. include the people that are on methadone who want to get off of methadone. So, okay, I'm a little confused. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that there's people out there that your clinic wants to help, but you are bottlenecked or constrained by the government's ability to give you the authority to do this Treat on a greater things. scale? That's right. Wow. Right. That's a little crazy, right? It, it is, isn't it? And why do they do that? <laughs> it was a, It was to 
keep control. Okay. You know, and right now there was legislation on trying to expand that minimum uh, number. Uh, so, but that's why most people say, well, it's not worth it for me to do this. Uh, or there's the stigma behind opiate addiction. So many primary care doctors will say, well, I don't want drug addicts coming to my nice office. And I don't blame them. I, I get that, that was going to be my next question is that. why don't people want to prescribe it? It's because their clientele shifts. There's a clientele shift. I don't want my nice HMO patient sitting next to. Got it. You know what I'm saying? And Whereas you're like, bring them in. Bring this, them. Is what, this is what we're here for. Bring them all in. You know, the frustration we've had from the emergency medicine side is that we see them all the time in the emergency room. And then we see them in their worst. So in two forms, either in an overdose situation or a drug-seeking situation. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So already it's, there's a helplessness mm-hmm. to, to that when you emergency docs and nurses, we see these patients, we go, there's nothing I can really do for these people. You know, I, well, when they come in overdose, there's a reversal agent called Narcan, mm-hmm. that which now EMS and PD will carry because, you know, they find overdoses at the scene. You know, you're, it's a timed event. So yeah. if, if the problem with an overdose is that we, enough opiates will cause you to stop breathing. Mm-hmm. And the oxygen deprivation to the brain causes the death, mm-hmm. you know. And what used to be years ago, people just kind of nodding off on their way in and they, they get their Narcan by the paramedics and they wake up. You know, now it's cardiac arrest, you know, mm-hmm. CPR in progress, 30-year-old female, for example, you know. And to see, you know, a, a young woman in the ER intubated CPR in progress with needle tracks in her, in, on her arm and you realize there's a C-section scar across her belly going, Aww. you know, she just orphaned a kid today yeah, because of this epidemic. And, you know, and had we gotten a hold of her the week before, right. you know, we might have saved another life. Right. So I feel like I want to take a step back um, as far as the types of people who you might serve. And the one is obviously the troubled teenager. I think of the movie Traffic with Michael Douglas. You get those kids shooting up heroin. Mm-hmm. And then you Except, ha- let's stop for a second and say, I think sometimes movies mm-hmm. give us a perspective on things like it's only happening here or you have to go to this side of town to have this experience. And we know full well... Mm-hmm. In our town of Elmhurst, and obviously Kenji knows where this is going on mm-hmm. everywhere, but there has been issues in the nicest parts of town. Well, and that was my second <clears throat> thing. And then I feel like there, well, yes, so there's this perception. Perception, And right. then there's the reality of how this is happening in the ghetto and it's happening in the rich neighborhood, of course, I'll say. Yes. But then additionally, so like that's one group of people that I feel like our audience is interested in. Then the other group are the people, the the businessman who breaks his leg mm-hmm. and becomes addicted to whatever, right. or the full-time, you know, the stay-at-home mom who for whatever reason gets treated for one thing or another. And all of a sudden they actually fall, them, fall into this addiction. And I assume that is, is that like the two main categories of how these people... Uh, get addicted? Most commonly. Okay. Yeah, most commonly. When I ask patients that come to us, you know, how they got started, the, the classic story is I had an injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My doctor put me on this, which graduated to this. And when I couldn't get this, I went to that. Mm-hmm. So then, then you start seeing needle tracks under their arms and, you know, you see infected track marks and things like that. And they, there are a whole host of other, you know, that kind of behavior puts you at a, a risk a whole different risk category for other medical problems, you know, hepatitis and HIV and all these other transmissible diseases. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a billion-dollar problem, actually, because if you think about the medical side alone, not just the, the, social, the psychosocial or the law enforcement side, yeah. you know, there's plenty of folks who are in prison right now for retail theft because they need money for their you know, drugs. So even let's take it back even further. Mm-hmm. What were people getting for pain before these opiates became so popular, and why are we here? 
We are here for multiple reasons. Okay. Um, and I, there's, you know, I don't want to say I blame three categories, but right. there, are three, there are three issues, right? It starts with whatever injury and or psychosocial issue that the patient began with, mm-hmm. followed by big pharma mm-hmm. yeah. telling us that, oh, no, no, don't worry. The Oxycontins are not addictive. Mm-hmm. Don't you worry. Or, you know, these are long-acting preparations. People won't get the high. They won't get addicted. Well, people know. They get smart. That's right. They start crushing things, and they start snorting things, and start cooking things, and realize, oh, I can get a buzz from this. Um, and then, uh, you know, and the medical community. There are plenty of physicians out there who are, you know, and, and there's something called the um, Illinois Prescription Monitoring Service, okay? So you can log on. If you have a DEA number, you can log on and put in a patient's name and, and their birth date, and it'll give them every... Uh, controlled substance that they've ever uh, filled at a pharmacy Hmm. and the physician who wrote for them. So when I see things like 240 Vicodin written for somebody every month, Hmm. I'm just bewildered. I'm like, ah, really? You know, what kind of pain issue could you possibly have that require that kind of volume? It's not pain. It's it's addiction. And isn't that a red flag? Like who oversees that? Ah, who does oversee that? <laughs> it's not overseeing enough. That's the problem. So that's yeah. one of the messages we're trying to get out to on the physician side is we need to monitor this a little bit better. Yeah. But that, that's, yeah, the question you said was how do we, how do we get to that point? Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, so it's really there's multiple components to this. And like I said, even in the emergency room, you know, I found myself saying the same thing. You know, this piss patient is here every week for the same pain issue. My doctor's out of town. I'm allergic to uh, ibuprofen. I can only take narcotics, and this is the only thing that works for me. And then there's other uh, aspects of hospital medicine. There's, you know, if anyone listens from the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation, they've decided that uh, one of the quality parameters is, is your pain controlled? Mm. So they'll ask you, if, if you, they'll rate, did this physician do a good job? Did he give you pain medication? So now, you know, the hospital administration is coming down on the physicians right. to provide adequate pain medication. Now, you go to an ER, you know, there's no one faster than an ER nurse and doctor that'll get pain medication to someone with bones sticking out of their body. But if it's something like, oh, I've got this sciatica that it keeps me up at night and it's terrible and I can't sleep and well, you know, and you come in every week, everything's computerized. We know exactly how many times you've come in. We know exactly how many scripts you've had. So it becomes now this dance. Mm. So there's this bad animosity, this bad relationship that begins when you're already trying to help patients that come into emergency rooms, but there's nothing we can do for them. So we find ourselves saying, well, how many Norco will it take for this patient to go home Mm. and not complain to the administration about me for being a bad physician or, you know, being a bad nursing? Right. So It becomes a Band-Aid effect. It does become a Band-Aid. So we're not helping the situation. So how do we, you can't answer this question truthfully, but how do you fix that? How do we? What do we do? We need to provide treatment. Okay. Mm-hmm. We need to raise awareness. We need to get on the medical community about better monitoring. So it's 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 multifactorial. What about the parent who the kids, you know, falls off the slide and breaks their arm and the doctor Pardon the interruption folks, we'll get back to the interview in just a sec. But first I want to tell you about our amazing partners. Jay Smith is a friend of ours and president of McGill First Aid Kit. Jay put together the ultimate family first aid kit containing everything his family and yours might need. Items for burn relief, bandages for all kinds of cuts, top of the line tweezers, eye wash, cold compresses, you name it. It even has a car sickness bag for those tough road trips. So here's the deal. Go to mcgillfirstaidkit.com to buy your $70 kit for just $65 and that includes free shipping. Just make sure you enter the code ZENCODE. 
Hunter Clark Fields is a mindfulness mama mentor. She coaches smart, accomplished, overstressed moms on how to create mindfulness in their daily lives. Hunter has over 20 years of experience in yoga and mindfulness practices and has taught thousands worldwide. She does one-on-one coaching and she also has the Present Mama community. It's a subscription service where you get access to an ever-growing library of high-quality yoga practices, guided meditations, and mindful parenting lessons. It includes a community forum and a live group coaching call. Check out presentmamacommunity.com. Now, back to the interview. So it's 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 multifactorial. What about the parent who the kids you know, falls off the slide and breaks their arm and the doctor prescribes whatever, what's, what's one of the drugs that you, you know, for codeine, hydrocodone, what, what does the parent say to that? I mean, does the parent say, yes, we'll take it because we need to manage this pain. Or does the parent say, well, can we try this instead? Like what, what are some of the things that you might say in that situation? I think physicians in general try to push for non-narcotic treatment for most kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, whether there are pain conditions that re- will require narcotic pain medication. It's, it is a requirement. I mean, if, you know, when you see your kid with a deformed wrist, yeah. you want to see, you, you see that kid get some pain relief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I get it. In the acute setting, um, that's perfectly reasonable. It, when it becomes a chronic problem is when red flags need to be raised. Right. Got it. Well, and then here's the piece, because I, I just spent a lot of time with my dad in the hospital, and, mm-hmm. and when he was first there, there was significant pain, and mm-hmm. he was giving given something to that effect that was a really strong mm-hmm. narcotic. Mm-hmm. And then, the, actually, they were wonderful about it. You know, as his pain started to decrease, they mm-hmm. started to decrease that until it, you know, became Tylenol and mm-hmm. ibuprofen, mm-hmm. which was wonderful. So right. he goes home in that way. Um, but my question is, is there's got to be an emotional component here, too, which you kind of already hit on. Mm-hmm which is someone may come in with physical pain Mm -hmm. um, and they may need that wrist treated or that leg treated. But if their emotional pain is also a little out of control for whatever reason, and obviously we all know there's a multitude of reasons, then they're they're using that drug in a completely different way. So even when the the arm is not broken anymore, they're like, I haven't felt this good since my divorce. I haven't felt this good since before I had kids or for the kids who are depressed. You know, so what's that? And they'll claim that this this drug gives me energy. It makes me feel better. It makes all these things better in my life, you know, and it helps me with my relationships and and it doesn't. Yeah. This is the face of addiction. And, you know, the, 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 the classic opiate addict has changed. It's not, like you said, in the movies, these street urchin with a needle in their arm. Right. It's soccer moms. Yeah. It is college kids. It is people working nine to five jobs. And when they roll up their sleeves, you go, oh, wow, that's, that's, we're, that's a problem. We're going to have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, opiates are anywhere from pills to patches to, to heroin. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, but the treatment is really all the same. We have to figure out a way to treat them medically to get them out of the withdrawal, without of craving, so that they can actually be treated. Because no one can sit in a, in a group session and talk about, talk about it when they're in withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're just miserable. So no one's going to listen. No one's going to learn from that. But if you can get a hold of that from a medically-assisted treatment, they call it MAT, medically-assisted treatment, they, they will have the ability to get into the proper therapy and uh, counseling that they, that they need. And statistically, the rate of relapse is, is obviously got to be lower in that situation. Absolutely. 
Okay, so this is something that's super important to Todd and I, and I know it is to you, (laughs) you know, based on what you're doing, but is that that idea of hope. Because I think a lot of families say, I literally hear people say, this is hopeless, Mm -hmm. you know, what's what's happening and, Mm -hmm. you know, and we have to know that there is a way. Mm -hmm. It's just making that way more accessible. Right. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. How how do you, uh, so let's... How do you help the parent? Let's say there's a parent out there and they're worried that their 16-year-old is shooting heroin. What are some... Because I don't know anything about it. Like, I don't know if these kids snort it, smoke it, or put it in through their through a needle. What's the most popular? What are most of these kids doing? I think it'll start with pills. Okay. And from a parent perspective, I would say go through your medicine cabinets. You know, if you look, you will find... Oh, there's a codeine prescription here from a year and a half ago. There's, a, there's six Narcos left uh, from, you know, from an injury I had back in the day or whatever. And, you know, and kids talk. You know, unfortunately, my, I, my, my junior high school daughter knows what Xanax is because she's yeah. heard about it from mm-hmm. kids. You know, and all the kids at school, you know, whether it's smoking pot or drinking beer or whatever, they'll say, yeah, oh, yeah, my, my parents had some narco and what you want, you want some. And, yeah. you know, next thing you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to tra- keep track of that. You know, this is the kind of thing where, you know, it's not like alcohol where you smell it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you can catch uh, you know, someone who's got bloodshot eyes, you know, oh, maybe they're drunk. Mm-hmm. But opiate addiction is a lot easier to hide. There's no smell. You pop a couple pills. And if you notice that their pupils are really tiny, that might be one issue. But if they're just sleepy and they're kind of nodding a little bit you, you might you might recognize it, but it's easy to miss it some will say oh i'm just tired i didn't sleep last night so you know they can hide this very well right so it's very so common is it like a down this may be the wrong word but like a downer so like heroin doesn't make you like jovial and jumpy and energetic or anything it brings you down it brings it down okay right it's uh, there's a, a euphoric effect when people hit a certain you know certain level of uh, medication in their system and they're relatively naive to it but that always gets heads downward. Yeah. You know? So as, as the addiction progresses and the tolerance rises, they need more and more to mm-hmm. get that original feeling. And what people need to understand is they'll never hit it. They'll never hit it again. Mm-hmm. That know? was and it. I, and I tell them all the time, understand that you will never be high again. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we can treat you and you will be normal. Mm-hmm. This is a new normal is what they need, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to not not have to depend on this or that to find money for drugs. Two questions I always ask people when they come into the office. I said, well, you know, good thing. You, you, congratulations on making the decision to come here, first of all. But I always ask them, one, how much were you spending a day on drugs? Because there, you know, in heroin, there's now there's all this lingo that I've learned, like jabs and shirts and <laughs> bags and how much they use. To me, I, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand that. But you, if you tell me you're spending $100 a day, mm-hmm. like, I get that, mm-hmm. right? So that's three grand a month. Yeah, it's a okay. lot of money. That's a lot of money. I've heard I've had one patient tell me he was spending three hundred a day. I'm like, you spend nine thousand dollars a month on heroin? And when he told me how he got it, I'll, I'll tell you off off, off the record, right? Off the record mm-hmm. on how he did it. And that was kind of very, very humbling. But so I do that math for them. Um, then the other issue is how much time do you spend a day looking for drugs? And thinking about or, it. Or or right, or or looking for money to get mm-hmm. the drugs. You know, a very interesting um, patient of ours told us, um, if you're a true blue addict, when you meet someone for the first time, as you're shaking their hand, you're sizing them up for one or two things, money or drugs. That's right. It's, that was mm. a very humbling and eye-opening uh, thing to hear. Yeah. But it's true. How much of your practice, obviously you have the medical and these um, 
drugs to help them come off of it, mm-hmm. but how much of it is counseling and like the emotional part of it? Uh, a significant portion of it. Um, so we've, we've partnered with uh, Dr. Copeland, who works in our office with us. She's a PhD psychologist, and she is uh, running our counseling portion uh, the internally. Now we will also refer out uh, outside of our office as well. People are coming from all over. And we thought, if we drop an office in Northbrook, will we get a bunch of North Shore people? Well, we do, but people are driving from Rockford, mm-hmm. from Peoria, from Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And when they call, we always say, so there's no one else who could help you between Bloomington and Northbrook, Illinois? Well, no. So there's this list online. If you go to if you to Google search Suboxone Providers in Illinois, for example, and there's like 120 providers. So you'd think on the map, wow, there's a lot of providers. Right. So it should be saturated in the Chicago metropolitan area. It's not. Because uh, my partner, John, when he called all 120 of them, uh, basically 120, 110 didn't answer because <laughs> those numbers were no longer valid. And when they probably registered for their DEAX license, that was a legitimate number, but it's changed or they moved to offices or whatever, or they're doing only inpatient or something else, or they're full because they hit right. their 30 or their 100. Right. He said about five of them will answer hello, which is a little creepy. Yeah. And then, you know, another five will say, you know, they'll say whatever doctor's office and they'll say, hey, do you do Suboxone treatment? And uh, you'll hear a muffled voice. Oh, hang on. Hey, do we do Suboxone? Yeah, we do Suboxone. Well, how much does it cost? Hang on. Hey, how much does it cost? I mean, it's that disorganized. Wow. You know? So we said, all right, we have to put together something that is a lot more organized. Yes. And above board. Professional. We need it done professionally. We need it and and looking at it through that lens mm-hmm. of medical necessity. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the big shift. Um, Todd and I are, um, you know, mental health is a huge part of what we uh, focus on on the show. And, you know, we big part of NAMI is a, is a big part of our life. And it's that big shift of understanding, as you already used, you know, diabetics need this. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a heart patient, you need this. Mm-hmm. If you have this addiction and this brain chemistry, you need this. Correct. And a lot of it be even, uh, you know, legislatively or, or what's decided at a government level, level is based on bias. That's correct. Well, is it possible? Because I feel like there is a niche that you saw in the marketplace, and I know you're doing this to help people, mm-hmm. so I don't want to understate that. Mm-hmm. But you found this niche that people were not, didn't have access to the help that you thought that they needed. Right. And is it possible that that didn't take place because there's no money in it? Because a lot of heroin addicts don't have any money to spend, or they beg, borrow, and steal, or something like that. Like, how is it possible that that you're one of a few? offices that are treating it the way it's being treated because there is a need right where's the absence come from i think stigma mm-hmm. you know the people, really? the, people don't want to treat uh addicts Mm-mm. wow you know it's a it's a subset of uh of medicine that is vastly ignored mm-hmm. and what we don't and what's crept up on us is that the volume has just skyrocketed <laughs> so it has to be addressed and, for example, the Lake County Opiate Initiative is, is really addressing this mm-hmm. uh, head on, and they're doing a great job. There are organizations like Live for Lolly, for example, that are really helping out people that are, who are addicted. And, you know, everyone's got a story. You mm-hmm. know, my brother was an addict. My mother was an addict. And then we, even, even people within our organization at Brightside, we all have a, a, a connection. Somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're going to post these resources in the show notes mm-hmm. in case somebody's interested. But can you tell me what those websites were that you just said, Live for Lolly? Mm-hmm. And so the, let me start with this one, Suboxone.com, Treatment, Find a Doctor. You kind of made fun of it. Is this a resource that I should be providing or not? Well, it's something that people, when they Google search Suboxone, 
some providers, they'll get to that because mm-hmm. it'll come up pretty quickly. Yeah. But it's difficult to find a provider that will still answer the phone okay. or has availability. Mm-hmm. So it's not he's not saying it's an impossible resource. No. He's saying it's not the resource you may think it is. Is there a resource that, that our right listeners... <laughs> right, I know, but a lot of our listeners live in California. Right. Or we're anywhere in the world, much less the country. So... What do you say to those people? And it's probably an unfair question, but I'm going to ask you anyways. That's a good question. I, I don't think there's enough resources. I think as uh, this, there's more awareness, uh, I think someone will start figuring this out. Mm-hmm. I mean, we figured it out locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are we're, we're one of very, very few resources uh, in the area that can treat people. And people are coming from two, three, four hours away. Yeah. So we intend to expand to multiple sites. Mm-hmm. And uh, my... Our plan is, since that I have a good connection to many physicians in the Chicago metro area, I'm going to get my friends That's and right. my colleagues yeah, start with to your, get on board. Yeah. You know, and, but they can see that this is a, a, a real need. Yeah. And ER docs and some of the hospitalists I have working with us, you know, they, they're like, okay, we, we've never known where to send these people. Hmm. Now, you, know, you can send them to the on-call you know, family practice physician who's taking call for the ER, but what are they going to do with these people? Right. Nothing. Insurance? Well, we do not uh, bill insurance directly. So we are, it's, this clinic is a cash-only clinic, but uh, what we will do is we'll do all the pre-authorizations. So the biggest, f- uh, the biggest cost for these people would be the actual medication. Mm-hmm. But even Medicaid insurance will cover this medication at Walgreens or Walmart. Mm-hmm. So what they don't realize is that if they have, you know, they do some paperwork and we will help them out with the rest, the, and that's why I always do the math for them. I do drug math. I yeah. say, okay, so you're spending $3,000 a month on heroin mm-hmm. where you could, be, you could be, what you're going to have to figure out is what you're going to do with the extra $2,500 you are going to save a month. Right. Mm-hmm. And all the extra time a day you're going to have. Now. And your life and, right. and your family's life that right. you have completely turned upside down because Correct. of it. I know you want to ask a question. I do because one of the most important things, because I know that people who are going to listen to this show, this is the, this is what they really want to know. If you were going to go speak at a high school or mm-hmm. at a junior high, mm-hmm. or if you were going to go speak to kids or parents, what is, instead of this is what it is, this is what I'm treating, what can you tell them as far as avoiding this? What is the information you would give parents or kids? That there's a, a real danger. Okay. And that the death toll is rising. And people need to be aware that this is out there. And just as parents of young children, we need to get a hold of it early on, mm-hmm. be able to identify the problem. You know, we don't want to talk about how so-and-so we know died from an overdose. I mean, it's the dark, it's the dark and dirty secret. I mean, if as I discuss this with multiple people I know, it's always, well, you know, my friend has a brother who's got a problem. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so-and-so had this. And there's always connection, maybe second or third removed, but... You'll find out it's it's happening more than you think, and it's happening in your neighborhood. Yes, and the point that you made about the prescriptions in the medicine cabinet, I think that's a huge piece mm. is because – so my history, I used to work at Children's Memorial, and I worked in uh, child psychi- uh, psychiatry. Mm. So I was kind of in that world of kids getting prescribed meds. Right. Um, so – not only do kids get prescribed meds, but obviously the parents are getting prescribed meds. And so, like you said, even when they're not using them anymore, done with them, they sit there. Right. And when kids get wind of what these can possibly do, right. you know, way back when, when I was at the hospital, it was Ritalin issues mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever they can do with it is we have to understand that these are 
that these are not things we want to keep around. And there's actually, I know in Elmhurst, they have pharmaceutical, like you can dump your pharmaceuticals yeah. at the police station, right? right? Is yeah. that true? Most police stations will have a, a drop box. A drop box, that's it. Right. Yes. And so that's something we can do is being more, the, the point of this conversation with Dr. Kenji and just why Todd and I want to talk about this is, is it's an, it's be informed and have an understanding of that this is an issue. And even if you've heard it like far away, like it might be an issue, it is an issue. And so we can be conscious of what's in our own homes. And I'm a big believer in talking to our kids really honestly about what people are doing and why they die. Like, uh, you know, the lead singer of the Stone Temple Pilots just Mm -hmm. died last week, right? right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was talking- it's a lifetime of drug use. I don't know what... He didn't wake up. He was on a bus. Yeah. Headed for a concert. Wow. And they found cocaine on the bus, Mm -hmm. among many other things. He's taken over his lifetime. So this, I don't know if it was heroin or anything else, but my point is, is when, you know, I I used to like that band and I said to the girls, you know, a lead singer from a band I really liked died. Mm -hmm. How did he die? And I tell them, this is what he did. This And not in a blaming, he's an awful guy. Here's what happened to him. You know, telling these stories of Mm -hmm. why people get addicted to things, how it happened happens and that this is the end result. I think we sometimes sugarcoat things with our kids and I'm not saying we need to tell them at five, but as they get older and they're asking those questions like that, your daughters, did you say it was your daughter said Mm -hmm. to you, Mm -hmm. you know, Xanax. Okay. Let's really talk about Xanax instead of avoid that. Don't you know, tell them what that is. This is kind of like sex. Parents don't like to talk to their kids about sex because it makes them uncomfortable. And same goes for drugs is if we start having a conversation about drugs with our kids, one is I'm as a dad, I'm uncomfortable talking to her about it. And secondly, if I start talking to them about it, that might make them more likely to use it, which is the opposite of the truth. It's the opposite. To me, it is. As a, as a therapist, I believe that the more information, education, the more that something is open communication in the home, the you know, the less likely it is that that's going to be the route they go because they have all the information. It's the kids who are told, don't touch this. We don't talk about this. And then are like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, they don't have all of that education at their uh, fingertips. And so would you agree with that, Dr. Kenji? Absolutely. Yeah. I like to tell my patients that, you know, this is not their fault. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the, the the choice to start may have been theirs, but right. the choice to continue is not. Right. So like I said, once you have this brain chemistry change, you engage in compulsive behavior to continue the addiction. and But without medically assisted treatment... You know, you're going to be stuck in that rut for a very long time. Yes. And, and things get worse and worse and they snowball. So, you know, I treat all our patients with compassion. Mm. And, mm. I, and I tell them, this isn't your fault. 10% of people that are exposed to narcotics will become addicted. That's a terrible statistic. That is a terrible statistic. But it's the reality. Well, and not only is it not their fault, um, I'm sure the parents beat themselves up severely for having a kid. Like, what did I do wrong? Mm, and sure. it's not necessarily the case. Maybe you did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. The one question I was going to ask is how come, and I think I know the answer is, how come some people take the you know morphine or they they break their leg and they take their pills and then everything and then they go off of it? Like how come it happens to some people um, that they get addicted to the opiates and other people take the drugs as prescribed and then move on, move on. It's multifactorial. I think there is a, there is definitely a, a genetic predisposition for it. Okay. Very frequently when I ask these patients in the office, do you have any family history of addiction? Well, oh yeah. Everyone in my family is an alcoholic or this or that. Mm. You know, I, I've had, I have a patient who was a methadone baby himself. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, he was set up yeah. in the very beginning, but uh, yeah, some, some people will not get addicted to it. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for doing what you do. Because that is, I mean, just to be able to offer a resource like Brightside and to not just come in and say, oh, this is scary, let's get scared, mm-hmm. versus this is scary, this is real, but there is hope. There is hope. That is such option. a gift to the community and to our world. I mean, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So the website is brightsideclinic.com. Correct. And um, so, yeah, kind of to your point, Kathy, uh, there's obviously hope, but I feel like every other podcast we do about communicating with your kids and understanding their emotional intelligence, like that is like, what can you do to not let this happen in your family? You know, the other 270 podcasts we done will support that. This podcast today was about if this happens to you, this is a resource. Yeah, that's a good right. way to frame it, Todd. Thank but you. But the best way to avoid this from happening is to love your kids and take responsibility and role model the behavior that you want to see in your children. And Well, talk about it. Open communication. Yeah, right. And again, even with open communication, things happen right. and that are sometimes beyond our control. And this is this is something that, um, you know, treatment is available and speaking up and not making this, as Dr. Kenji said, a dirty little secret. That's correct. Yeah. Um, do you have any, is there anything else that you that you think our listeners might need to know about or uh, words of wisdom, anything, or are you good to go? <laughs> <laughs> they, they can call the office. Okay. And we have people who are on standby all, all day, all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, my partner answers his phone 24-7. Wow. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But <laughs> I haven't slept since 1996. So. <laughs> You're like, why start now? <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to help people. I know. And we've actually... We we made created this resource to be able to help people and just improve things in the community. So, uh, you know, right now I'm reaching out to inpatient settings as well and saying, hey, when you discharge these people, where do you send them? Right. And oftentimes it's, oh, we send them to, you know, counseling and IOP. I'm like, so you had them medicated for 60 days and then you dropped it. Right. So we're trying to also be that resource to be that, to pick up where people, other people have left off. People have done some good work, got them to you know this point. Right. We will continue that process. What right. if there's a school principal listening and they're like, I want to give my kids some information on heroin. Do you have resources available that you can at least direct them to saying, we know, we know some wonderful speakers or maybe yeah. some... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we, there's the... So this is one of my favorites, the National Alliance of Advocates for Buprenorphine Treatment. Uh, they will give all sorts of information about how the brain chemistry has changed and how buprenorphine can help out with this kind of treatment. Um, but they're, you know, they're, my phone never goes off. So mm-hmm. if anyone wants to talk to me about it, mm-hmm. uh, they can call the office and they'll get a hold of me right away. And I will make personal appearances oh, and wow. educate people and you know talk to as many people as I can to get the word out. Should I give your phone number out? Well, go ahead. Um, 224-205-7866 Brightside Clinic. It's located in Northbrook, Illinois. So... Dr. Kenji, you're awesome. This is the beginning of the change. That's and right. thank you so much for, for creating that change. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. That's our show, friends. We hope you felt outstanding. And if you want to continue feeling this outstanding, go to zenparentingradio.com and subscribe to the podcast. You can also subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, feel free to give us a kind review. You can email us at comments at zenparentingradio.com or you can record a voicemail by clicking on the Send Us a Voice Message link on our homepage with comments or questions. Don't forget, our Zen Parenting Conference is on March 11th and 12th, 2016. For more details, go to zengetsreal.com. 
If you're interested in any of Kathy's three award-winning books, you can purchase through our website or through Amazon. We also do local presentations, virtual retreats, and movie screenings, which can be found by clicking on the Events tab on our webpage. If you ever shop via Amazon, you can help us out by first going through the Amazon link on our homepage. It doesn't cost anything to you, but we get a small commission from Amazon. If you're interested in the Tribe, the monthly men's group that I co-facilitate, you can go to thetribemensgroup.com for more details. Lastly, and most importantly, a special thanks to our three partners, Avid Company, Tree of Life Chiropractic Care, and John J. Kelly Dentistry. If you own a business and are interested in partnering with us, please send me an email at comments at zenparentingradio.com. Finally, we're grateful for your support and encouragement. We only ask that you give the same to yourself and the people you love most. Until next time.